see you all here this morning. Great to see visitors too. As Keith said, if it's your first time, it's great to have you with us. Uh, good to see everybody here today on Father's Day. I had Father's Day yesterday because Sunday is always a bit manic for us. So we had Father's Day yesterday, uh, which was very good. Uh, hopefully I might manage to stretch it out over another day a little bit today. And my kids have disappeared. Anyway, that's the aim. I wonder if you've ever thought about what you would do if you didn't do what you currently do. So if you had another life or a parallel life, what would you do if you had another life? And if you didn't live your current life and your current existence, what what would that look like for you? What would that be like? What would be your kind of dream other uh, if you weren't what you do, if, if you weren't what you are? For me, one of the things I'd love to be, this might seem a bit odd to you, is to be a sheep farmer. That would be something I would love to do, to be a sheep farmer up in the hills somewhere in the north of England. I spent lots of my holidays as a kid um, uh, on our friend's farm over in Cumbria near Kirby Stephen. And they uh, are in the valley, but they have the mountains right behind them, and they have several thousand sheep up on the hills. So lots of my holidays were spent sheep shearing and and dipping and uh, um, lambing, and just that that was kind of my life as a teenager and as a kid coming up on holidays. Uh, Some great, great times, loads of great memories. The breed of sheep that, or the, the majority breed of sheep that our friends have, are called Swaledale sheep. And this is uh, a picture of some Swaledale sheep. They, they're kind of unique. They're found, or they originate from Swaledale, which is one of the uh, most northerly Yorkshire dales. But actually, you'll find them all over the north of England, up in the sort of uplands today. And if you come to our house, you'll see quite a few pictures of Swaledale sheep dotted around the house, in actual fact. Next time you think, oh, yeah, that's why Andy's got a picture of a Swaledale sheep there or there, or little models of shepherds and, and, and black and white collies and that kind of stuff. But there's actually another breed of sheep uh, that you sometimes see on rare breeds farms. You don't generally find these commercially farmed in the UK, but you do see them if you go to uh, kids' farms or where there's like a petting center and you can go and see the little uh, uh, sheep and cows and so on, and particularly on rare breeds farms. And that's a, a breed called Jacob sheep. And this is a picture of the breed that are called Jacob sheep. They're a rare breed, so you don't see them very often. Uh, but Jacob sheep are given their name because of their markings. They have unique markings, and they're, they're given their name because of an event that's found in the Bible because they were linked with Jacob. That's where the name Jacob Sheep comes from. And it's of a particular event in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. And we're going to look at that particular event this morning, and you'll see why this breed of sheep are called Jacob Sheep, because of what we're going to read uh, this morning. And at first glance, this account will seem a little bit bizarre. I don't mind admitting that, Uh, especially because we're not sheep farmers, and we're not sheep farmers from 4,000 years ago in the Middle East. Uh, I think that's fairly obvious. So this is going to seem a little bit bizarre to us as we read it. But hopefully as we dig a little bit deeper into the text, uh, what we're going to see as we go on uh, is that God wants to teach us some really valuable truths from this passage. Now over the last few weeks, we've been following the life of Jacob in the book of Genesis, going through it systematically. And that's one of the the, uh, beauties of systematic Bible teaching, because probably if I was to ask the various guys here who do Bible teaching, hey, do you fancy speaking on Jacob's sheep? I'm guessing that that was not going to be high on anyone's agenda, but when you go systematically through the Bible, it forces you to to tackle passages that you might otherwise skirt over or not do. Now, Jacob, as we've we've looked at and as we've discovered in the last few weeks, Jacob had uh, cheated. He was a a schemer. He was a trickster. He was a a liar. He was just a kind of no-good uh, guy, and he had, uh, ske- he had he cheated and schemed his brother and his father, then he'd fled away to his uncles up in the north uh, from where he lived, which is in now what is now sort of modern-day Turkey, and then Jacob found himself 
cheated by his uncle. He'd, he'd had this kind of strange marriage situation. He'd ended up being cheated and found he'd married the wrong sister, and then he had to marry the other sister, and it's all a little bit bizarre kind of life story. But today we've reached a stage in Jacob's life where he'd served his uncle for 14 years as part of this deal. And he wanted to go back home. He'd had enough. 14 years, it was time for him to go back home into what is now modern-day Israel. By, or then, uh, although by then he'd had, he, he had two wives. He had two concubines, which were kind of uno- unofficial wives. A little bit of a strange setup. And he had a whole load of kids that he'd built up from these uh, four different ladies. And yet, despite all that, he didn't really have any possessions. He'd worked for 14 years, but he didn't really have any material possessions to show for it. And so Jacob, the great schemer, the great trickster, tried to ensure that he had some possessions of his own, uh, namely some flocks of sheep and goats, because that was the kind of hard currency of the time. But Jacob, the schemer, the con artist, found himself once again up against his uncle Laban, who was more than a match when it came to scheming and tricking just as much of a con artist. So we're going to read Genesis 30. We're going to read verses 25 to 43, and we'll see why these sheep are called Jacob's sheep. So Genesis Genesis, uh, 30, we're going to read from 25 to 43. If you haven't got a Bible handy, that's fine. You can just listen as I read the passage to you. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He added, Name your wages, and I will pay them. Jacob said to him, You know how I've worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now... When may I do something for my own household? What shall I give you, he asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied, but if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages, and my honesty will testify for me in the future whenever you check on the wages you've paid me. Any goat in my possession that's not speckled or spotted or any lamb that's not dark-colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban, let it be as you've said. That same day, he, that he, that's Laban, removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them, and all the dark-colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks, which were the white ones. Jacob, however, took fresh branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they mated in front of the branches and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves but made the rest face the streaked and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's Laban's animals. Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so that they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and men servants and camels and donkeys. Well, 
What a bizarre account. I've got no one else to blame for dealing with this because I put the teaching program together. What on earth is all this about? It's a little bit bizarre, isn't it, when you read it at first. Well, essentially what is happening or what happens here is that, that Laban knows that his wealth has increased greatly because of Jacob, as Jacob has cared for his flocks. And so when Jacob suggests that it would be a really good time for him to head back to go home, Laban panicked because he knew that his own wealth depended massively on Jacob's presence. And so Laban says in verse 28, name your wages and I'll pay them. But Jacob didn't want wages, he wanted his own flocks, he wanted his own sheep and goats and so on. And he wanted to go home. So he proposes to Laban that they remove all the sheep and goats that were speckled or spotted and all the dark lambs. And then having removed those sheep and those goats from the flocks, from then onwards, any sheep or goats that are born, that are speckled or spotted or streaked, and any dark lambs, they will be Jacob's. But any that are plain white will belong to Laban. And by removing the speckled and the spotted sheep and goats and the dark lambs, all that Jacob would have had left would be white sheep and goats. And so it would be highly unlikely, humanly speaking, if not impossible, that the white sheep and goats that Jacob had left would give birth to speckled or spotted or streaked offspring. However, if they did, then Jacob would get to keep them. And they would be his wages. Now, humanly speaking, it was highly unlikely that the white sheep and goats would just produce white. It was, it was obvious that they would produce white offspring. That was what would be normally expected. And because any white offspring would then belong to Laban, Laban thought that Jacob had offered him the perfect deal. Laban was really happy about this. And to make things even more one-sided, Laban then removed all the spotted and speckled sheep and goats and the dark lambs, and he gave them to his sons. And his sons took them on a three-day journey, so they were far away from the, the flocks that uh, Jacob had left, which were just white. There was no chance of these marked animals mating with the white uh, sheep and goats that Jacob had left to look after. And then Jacob does this really bizarre thing. Look at verses 37 to 39. Jacob, however, took fresh-cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they mated in front of the branches, and they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. So Jacob wrongly believed that if the sheep and the goats saw white markings on these branches that he put in front of them when they were mating, that this would cause them to produce offspring that would have white marks on them. In other words, they'd be streaked or speckled or spotted. Now, we know today that animals don't produce young based on what their parents see when they are conceived. We know that it's due to genetics. But nevertheless, when Jacob did this, his sheep and goats did produce striped and streaked and speckled and spotted offspring. And so Jacob carried on believing that what he was doing was impacting the uh, offspring that he was producing. That's what he believed was happening. Now, it's not clear whether this was, in his mind, some kind of old wives' tale or shepherd's myth. There's a lot of stuff like that. still happens in the countryside. If you talk to farmers, they do certain things based on, well, this is just how we've always done it, a bit of superstition and myth. Maybe it was something more sinister. Maybe it was even a kind of uh, dark occult power thing. But whatever Jacob thought he was doing, that's what he did, and that's the reason he did it. And it appeared to him to work. And, of course, as Jacob's flocks got larger and larger, uh, Laban couldn't do a thing about it. And in addition to this strange practice with the branches and the white markings, he also practiced selective breeding so that his flocks got stronger and stronger 
at Laban's expense. And verse 43 says this, In this way the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. One schemer managed to out-scheme the other schemer. Or so it seemed. Jacob thought he'd out-conned his uncle Laban, who in turn, to start with, thought that he'd out-conned his nephew Jacob. Because if we go over into chapter 31, we find that Laban kept on changing the deal. Six years this happens for, and we find that Laban did it that ten times Laban changed the, the kind of terms of reference of the deal. As soon as one thing started happening, Laban would change the deal so that uh, it, was, it was impossible for Jacob to keep up. But he did. Ten times he did this over a six-year period. Look at Genesis 31, 7 to 9 on your outlines, and it's up on the screen as well. You should have an outline on your seat, by the way. There's all the verses there, and there's some, some uh, things for you to fill in as well as we go through. And, and, and Jacob says this to his wives. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. That, that was Laban. If he said the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock, and has given them to me. So no matter what Laban did, Jacob just kept on prospering. But it actually had nothing to do with the branches with the white markings on them. It wasn't down to Jacob's efforts. Toward the end of this six-year period, where Laban and Jacob are in this constant battle trying to outwit each other for, for, for wealth and all the rest of it, Jacob has a dream at the end of this six-year period. He has a dream, and God speaks to him. Look at Genesis 31, verses 10 to 12. He says this, in the breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. Now, he didn't have any male goats that were streaked, speckled, or spotted, but that's what he saw. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. So despite the fact that all the, li- all the livestock that Jacob been, had been left with by Laban were white, God ensured that the male sheep and goats that mated with the females were carrying the genes that enabled the females to produce streaked, speckled, or spotted offspring. Neither Laban or uh, Jacob understood genetics. I don't. I've got to see it biology for genes, so that's about as far as I go. But I do know this, that genes can be recessive which means that although the parents don't carry a feature or don't look in a particular way, they can still be carrying the genes which enable their offspring to uh, appear in a certain way. Now, my wife has red hair, but her parents don't have red hair. In fact, her grandparents didn't have red hair, but there is red hair further back. So there's a, a great example of how genes can be recessive, and suddenly you have a red-haired child or a child that has blonde hair or, or, or different uh, looks. My, my oldest brother had blue eyes, but my parents don't have blue eyes, but grandparents did and so on. So Jacob wrongly believed that it was his efforts to produce marked offspring which was behind the success that he had. He thought that if he made these marks, these kind of white marks on the branches that when the sheep mated, that, they, that somehow what they saw, and this was a kind of common myth apparently at the time, what they saw would cause their offspring to uh, have similar markings on them. But God in, these dream, in, in, in this dream, God showed him that actually he was the one who was ensuring that only the males carrying the right genetic um, uh, markers and so on mated with the females so that they produced marked offspring, which Jacob then could then keep as part of this deal. And what Moses, who was the author of this, what Moses wrote down uh, many years later, as he wrote down this account, what he was trying to communicate to his readers then and to us today, 4,000 years later, was that, this, that, that, that Jacob didn't prosper because of his own efforts. It was because God was at work blessing him. 
Jacob didn't prosper because of his own efforts. This was because God was blessing him. It was God's grace, God treating Jacob in a a way that he didn't deserve. It was God's grace that caused Jacob to prosper, not Jacob's work or any goodness in Jacob. And in fact, what we've seen in Jacob was just a, a pretty unlikable, unpleasant individual. You see, God repeatedly chooses people in the Bible that don't deserve his blessings, and then he blesses them. And he does this to demonstrate and show that we don't receive God's blessings by our own efforts or because we've earned them. God doesn't choose people and bless them because they deserve it, because if it was down to that, none of us would ever get any blessings because none of us deserve God's blessings. The Bible says we've all sinned, we've all come short of God's perfect standard. So it's not about what we do, it's because God in his love chooses to bless people. God simply blesses those he chooses to bless. It's God's grace, God treating people in a way that they don't deserve. And Jacob certainly didn't deserve it. Jacob spent his life living without reference to God. Scheming, tricking people, doing things his way, trying to do things in his own strength. And yet, as we read the accounts of Jacob's life, what we see is that God is intimately at work in his life, behind the scenes, all the time. And Jacob often kind of, sometimes he acknowledges it, sometimes he gets a bit closer to God, but generally he's he's just doing his own thing without reference to God. But eventually, we get to this point, which we're going to look at in a few weeks' time, where Jacob would have a massive encounter with God. And God would change his name from Jacob to Israel. And we're going to look at that in a few weeks' time. And and Jacob became then the father of the nation of Israel. And his most famous descendant would become, uh, 2,000 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son, the one who chose to be born into Jacob's family line when he came to earth and become a human being so that he could die on the cross for our sins. God deliberately chose to work through a family line that was dysfunctional, sinful, and quite frankly, a mess. I mean, it'd be difficult to find a more dysfunctional family and less of a model of fatherhood for Father's Day than Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was pretty messy, pretty dysfunctional. And yet God deliberately chooses a family that didn't shine out, they didn't deserve it, they didn't get chosen by God because they were outstanding. He chose them in his grace. And he did this to show that his blessings, God's blessings to us, are not received through human efforts or through our goodness. God doesn't bless us in the different ways that he does because of any goodness in us or any innate goodness or righteousness. It's not because of the good stuff we do. God does this with what we call salvation. Salvation is one of these kind of big theological terms, and it simply means that we've had our sins forgiven, we've entered into a relationship with God, and we've received eternal life. That's what salvation means. And we don't receive these things, we don't receive salvation because we've earned them. We don't receive them because we've been good people. We receive these things simply by trusting in Jesus. It's God's grace, God treating us in a way that we don't deserve to be treated. Paul says this in the New Testament of the Bible. He says in Ephesians 2, 8-9, to he says, For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. So we're saved, we receive forgiveness, eternal life, a relationship with God. We receive that through faith in Jesus, through faith in who he is, and through through faith in what he's done for us, in dying there on the cross to take our place for our sins. And even the ability, Paul says here, even the ability to put our faith and trust in Jesus is a gift from God. 
It's not through what we do. It's a free gift. And this is so that we can't boast. So that we can't say, well, look, you know, I deserve this. I've done these things, therefore I've got this great relationship with God. It doesn't work like that. Because our very best efforts are disgusting in God's eyes. That they fall well short. Far short. And so it's so that we can't boast. It's not about us. It's all about God. It's all about God in his grace and his mercy blessing us in a way that we don't deserve. That's salvation. That's the gospel. That's the Christian message, the Christian faith. It's all down to God. And Jacob's material prosperity wasn't down to his own efforts. Despite what he thought, it was down to God's blessing and God's grace. And it may be today that you mistakenly think that by coming to church, by reading the Bible, by being good, by saying prayers, by giving to charity, by doing good stuff, that God will accept you. Now, I've got to tell you that it doesn't work like that. No amount of you doing good things or trying to impress God or please God will ever cause God to accept you doesn't work that way. Instead, he wants us to come to a place where we accept that there's nothing that we can do to earn God's love. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's acceptance. And instead, we give up trying to impress God by our lives, and we put our faith and trust in someone who did impress God, the Lord Jesus, who was perfect in every way, met every requirement of God's perfect standard. And then, as a perfect sacrifice, died there on the cross. So we put our faith in him, not in our attempts to get right with God because we can't so we put our trust in the one who could and did because it's only when we trust in Jesus and rely on who he is and what he's done dying on the cross that God will accept us it's all about God's grace and it's all about God it's all for his glory not for our glory and if that's you this morning if you're someone who's trying to get right with God get God to accept you through your efforts then quit trying to do that because you will never do it Can I challenge you this morning? Stop trying to impress God. Stop trying to work your way to heaven because you can't. Instead, can I urge you this morning to trust in Jesus, in who he is and in what he's done for you and receive that free gift that comes when we give up trying and relying on ourselves and when we accept the Lord Jesus, that free gift that God offers to all who trust in Jesus. But, you know, it's also true that even when we've trusted in Jesus, and perhaps many of us here this morning would say, yes, that's me, I've trusted in Jesus, and we're living for him, we can be like Jacob, and we think that the material blessings we have are because of our efforts. It may be that, like Jacob, we even try and take matters into our own hands, and we cheat a bit here, and we cheat a bit there, because we don't really trust God to provide for us financially. We cheat, we cut corners... We are a little bit dishonest. We bend the numbers because ultimately we don't trust God to provide for us. When we cheat, when we're dishonest with financial matters, what we're essentially saying to God is, I don't trust you to provide for me financially. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Paul says this in Philippians 4.19. He says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. My God will meet all your needs according to, your, to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God hasn't promised to supply all our wants. But he has promised to supply all our needs. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said these words in the Bible. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. 
So not only is our salvation a free gift from God if we've trusted in Jesus, but actually every other good gift we have in life is actually from God. Now, we might think that we're the ones earning our wealth. Well, you know, I've earned this car because I've worked hard and, and I've earned the money. Actually, the Bible says, no, God says in Chronicles, he says, I have given you the ability to earn your wealth. So actually, everything we have in life that is good is a gift from the Father above. So the Bible tells us that it's God that gives us the ability to earn our wealth. We might think that we need to take matters into our own hands to secure our finances and, and, and cut corners and adopt dishonest standards. You know, I'll, when the guy comes and, and does a job, I'll pay him cash because it's cheaper that way. But knowing that actually that's because I'm not, he's not charging VAT and he's not putting it through his books and we're colluding and we're aiding and abetting somebody to break the law. And actually we break the law when we do that. We try and we cut corners, we massage things, we just play around with a few things here and there. We adopt dishonest standards, but the Bible teaches us a different truth and a different way. Yes, we should absolutely work hard. And yes, we should make sure that we manage our finances well. We need to be really careful with our finances and manage them well and put them to work. And there's, and, and there's, there's a whole lot of stuff that we need to do there. But having fulfilled our calling to work hard, we then need to leave the rest with God. And trust that He and His grace will provide what we need. So having put in an honest day's work, we then leave that with God and we don't then attempt to manipulate and twist and distort things so that we have more money. Whether that's by paying less for things or by claiming things that we're not entitled to. You know, the world around us encourages us, doesn't it, to cheat on our taxes or on our benefits or, or pay cash so that we have to pay, to pay VAT or, or, or we pay cash for things that we know probably are not, maybe not are, are stolen, to put things through on our insurance when, we're not, when they're not really damaged or when they were damaged but not legitimately, all so that we can get a bit more money so that we can be a little bit more financially secure. But when we do that kind of thing, apart from the fact that we're stealing and lying and breaking the law, what we're saying to God ultimately is that we're not prepared to trust God to provide for us. That's what we're saying when we do that. Jacob thought he needed to fiddle the situation to try to get ahead. Instead of trusting in God, God had already promised for Jacob when he had his dream at Bethel, which we looked at a few weeks ago, that he would provide for him. God had promised that, but Jacob didn't really take that on board. And despite this, Jacob kept on relying on his own cunning and his own scheming to provide for himself rather than trusting in God. Jesus said these words, For the pagans run after all these things, by which he means material possessions. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So we're not supposed to run after and pursue material possessions. Instead, we're meant to run after and pursue God's kingdom. In other words, we're meant to put God first in everything and live by the standards of his kingdom which means honesty and integrity and holiness and righteousness in our financial dealings. You see, write this down. God wants us to live by the standards of his kingdom with honesty and integrity. Honesty and integrity. Are they words that characterize your financial dealings? Honesty and integrity. And Jesus says that if we put God first, if we pursue his kingdom, the standards of his kingdom of righteousness and honesty and integrity, if we do that, then all our needs are going to be provided for. Not necessarily all our wants, but certainly all our needs, because our Heavenly Father knows what we need. 
Now, the difference between our needs and our wants are significant. Our culture today tells us that we need all sorts of stuff. And actually, there's a whole load of things that we think we need in life when we don't really need and we could live a much simpler life. So God hasn't promised to provide all our wants, but he has promised to provide all our needs. And it's highly likely that our needs, as I said, will be significantly less than what we think they are. But even in this, God is gracious, and he often gives us way beyond what we need. God doesn't say, I will only give you your needs. He often gives us way beyond what we need. But he has promised to give us our needs. God had promised Jacob at Bethel in Genesis 28 that he would provide for him, but Jacob failed to trust God to do that. And instead, he kept on trying to do things his way. You know, God has promised to provide for us. We've just read the words of Jesus that say just that, and yet so often we fail to trust God. I think it was Spurgeon who said one of the last things to get converted is a person's wallet. We come to church on Sunday and we proclaim God and we, and we say that we trust in God, but then during the week, the connection or the disconnect rather between what happens on Sunday and how we handle our finances is often distinct and, and significant. Sometimes we're just not satisfied with what give, God gives us and we think that we deserve more than we already have. You know, God may or may not cause us or may cause you to be financially prosperous. But regardless of whether he does or he doesn't, what we're called to do is to put our trust in God and be people of honesty and integrity. Sometimes we think that because we live in a world that plays by different rules and, and encourages us to be largely dishonest, that we have to play by the same rules. But look at what Paul says. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And the idea is that we do this because we've encountered God's grace. It's God's grace that inspires us to live lives of honesty and integrity. We're not trying to be blameless and pure in order to get God to accept us. It's because we've been accepted, if we put our trust in Jesus, it's because we've been accepted by God's grace through putting our faith in Jesus that we choose then to be people of honesty and integrity. God wants us to trust him and his grace, whether that's for salvation, our sins being forgiven, a relationship with God, eternal life, or, or whether that's for our finances here on earth. So what is God saying to us through this quite frankly, bizarre passage today. Well, firstly this morning, are you someone who's trying to get God to accept you through the good stuff you do? If that's you this morning, can I urge you to quit trying to earn God's acceptance and instead to accept God's free gift of salvation, to accept God's grace by, by trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Secondly, do you recognize that, that every good thing you have in life is not the result of your labors or your abilities or your skills or your hard work? It's actually a good gift from God. And do we acknowledge that? My car is a gift from God. My wages are a gift from God. My, my health is a gift from God. Every good gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. Thirdly, in response to God's grace to you, in giving you salvation, if you've trusted in Jesus this morning, Will you trust him to provide for your needs instead of taking matters into your own hands? Your needs, not your wants, your needs. Will you trust God to provide for your needs? 
Let's be people that receive God's grace both in salvation and in our everyday life and are inspired then by God's grace to live lives of holiness and righteousness and honesty and integrity in response to God's love and grace for us. Let's just bow our heads and take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to us this morning. And if God is speaking to you in whatever way it is, then don't ignore God. Don't ignore the Spirit. Submit to His ways and encounter God this morning.